And as you're finding your seats, please take your Bible and turn to Psalm 100. Psalm 100. Psalm 100. A psalm for thanksgiving. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting, and his faithfulness to all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father who is in heaven, we come this morning to worship you. We come to give you true and living worship. We come to worship in spirit and in truth. We come to bring you praise, honor, and glory. The praise, honor, and glory that is due your name. So as we turn to your word now to discuss the worship of the church, may it be that this hour would be entirely worship unto you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. One of my personal spiritual heroes is Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a medical doctor turned pastor. Dr. Lloyd-Jones was one of English history's greatest preachers. He was known as the last of the Puritans. Lloyd-Jones ministered at Westminster Chapel in London for nearly 30 years. In his biography of Dr. Lloyd-Jones, Ian Murray describes the worship services at Westminster Chapel. Murray writes, The keenness with which 11 a.m., the hour of public worship, was awaited each Sunday will ever remain in the memories of those who were there. In a day in which church-going was no longer fashionable, a certain sense of expectation could be found in the very streets approaching the chapel as hundreds converged from all directions. There was a certain sense of expectation and excitement when it came to the hour of public worship at Westminster Chapel. There was a power in the air when it came to public worship. And it got me thinking, do we have that same sense of anticipation? Do we share that same sense of excitement when it comes to the hour of public worship? On the Lord's Day, when we come to church, the corporate gathering of Christ's body, do we come anticipating that we will meet with God himself, the God who spoke us into existence, the God 
of the universe. This morning, in our series on the communion of the saints, we will address the topic of the worship of the church. And we return to the purposes of the church. I need only remind you that exaltation is paramount. There is nothing more important in the life of the church than the worship of the church. Worship defines the church. We exist to worship. We are identified by worship. The primary purpose of the church is to worship. Not only that, there is nothing more important in life than worship. There is nothing more important in the world than worship. The greatest problem in the world today is not liberalism or terrorism or taxes or racism. The greatest problem in the world today is that man is not worshiping the one true and living God. The greatest problem in the world today is a matter of misdirected worship. Say it another way. The greatest problem in the world today is a matter of false worship. It is a matter of idolatry. Idolatry abounds in the world. And if the church itself is engaged in idolatry, then we are no different from the world. If the church itself is engaged in idolatry, then we are failing our primary purpose in this world. So we must get our worship right. If we, the church of Jesus Christ, do not worship correctly, then who will? This morning, I'd like to look at the topic of worship. I'd like to look at the definition of worship, and then the practice of private worship, and the practice of corporate worship. Let's look first at the definition of worship. No doubt we could spend an entire sermon series on this topic alone. No doubt we could write multiple volumes on the definition of worship alone. No doubt our time this morning will not do justice to this wonderful topic of worship. But this morning I just want to give us a glimpse, a peek, a taste of true biblical aspects of worship. First, true worship is directed towards God. John MacArthur says, worship is honor and adoration directed to God. We see this in our psalm, Psalm 100, verse 1. Shout joyfully to the Lord. Verse 2, serve the Lord with gladness. Verse 4, give thanks to him. Bless his name. God alone is the only true and proper object of worship. Worship, if it is to be true worship at all, must be directed to God and to God alone. The fundamental aspect of worship is that it must be directed to God. And one of the most fundamental differences between God and man is that God receives worship, but man gives worship. God deserves worship, and man ought to give worship. God exists to be worshipped, and man was created to worship. Man was made to be a worshipper. 
Man was not made to be worshipped. You see, everyone worships. Worship is something we all do. Every single one of us. All seven billion of us. We all worship. Religious people worship. Irreligious people worship. Pagans worship. Atheists worship. We all worship. We all worship something. It's not a matter of whether you worship or not. That's already settled. What matters is what do you worship? Or better said, who do you worship? God alone is the only true and proper object of worship. Secondly, true worship seeks communion with God. True worship seeks communion with God. Worship is not just something we do to God. It is something we do with God. Worship is relational. Worship is personal. William Barclay says, Genuine worship is when man, through his spirit, attains to friendship and intimacy with God. True worship is when the spirit the immortal and invisible part of man meets with God who is immortal and invisible. Psalm 100 verse 2, come into his presence with singing. Psalm 42, 1 and 2, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? At its root, true worship desires communion with God. It desires to engage with God. It, is, it desires to be in the presence of the Lord, to draw near to him. Our soul longs for union with God. We long to be with him, our king, our savior, our redeemer, our friend. Thirdly, True worship engages the entire being. Ken Davis says, Worship is a life-consuming, sacrificial response to God, whereby I offer to him my head, my heart, and my hands for the purpose of bringing him pleasure. True worship consumes the entire being. True worship influences the entire being. True worship claims the entire being. In true worship, you must give to God yourself in all the actions and attitudes of life. It must affect your head, your heart, your will, and your hands. Psalm 100, verses 1 and 2. We see this truth. Worship affects the lips. Shout joyfully. Worship affects the will. Come before him. Worship affects the hands. Serve the Lord. Worship affects the mind. Know that the Lord himself is God. Worship affects the heart. Shout joyfully. Serve the Lord with gladness. Worship must consume our heads, our hearts, our wills, our words, and our actions. It must consume all of us. This means, if you are to truly worship, 
You have to have all of the above. You have to have all of these aspects. For instance, if you have emotion without knowledge, that may be a powerful emotional experience, but it's not worship. If you have a dead orthodoxy, that is, you know a lot of things, and yet it doesn't affect your life. It doesn't affect the way that you live. That's not true worship. Or perhaps you serve. You do a lot of things, but in your heart of hearts, you have no passion, you have no affection, you have no joy, you have nothing but deadness inside. That is not true worship. Worship consumes the worshiper. It must affect all of our lives. Fourthly, true worship focuses on divine worthiness. True worship focuses on divine worthiness. Ligon Duncan says, worship is declaring with our lips and with our lives that God is more important than anything else in the world to us. He is our deepest desire. His inherent worth is beyond everything else we hold dear. We worship God because God deserves worship. It is right that God would receive worship. It is unjust if God is not worshipped. Psalm 29, verses 1 and 2. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. Worship is giving to God the glory due his name. The English word worship comes from its original root word, worth-ship. It means to attribute worth to an object, to attribute value to an object. And so worshiping God is to see God as worthy and to give him his worth. It is to see the worth of God and therefore give him his worth, the worth that he is due. It is to ascribe value to God. It is to say, God, you are more valuable to me than anything that this world has to offer. Last week, we spoke about John Rogers, the first of the English reformers burned at the stake under the reign of Bloody Mary. John Rogers, of course, was imprisoned for his views on the gospel and the Lord's Supper. While in prison, he was offered that if he should recant the gospel, if he should recant the name of Christ, if he should recant and take back his teaching on the Lord's Supper, then he would go free. He was not allowed to speak to his wife or 11 children while he was in prison. He begged them to let him speak with his wife, and they refused. In fact, he never got to see his 11th child until he was burned at the stake. So they offered him, if you recant, you'll go free and you can be back with your family. John Rogers said, what I have preached, I am ready to seal with my blood.
I was thinking about that this week, and it finally occurred to me. It dawned on me. Do you know what John Rogers was doing when he said that? John Rogers was worshiping. John Rogers was worshiping. You see, when martyrs would rather die than betray the name of Christ, when martyrs would rather give up their lives than recant the name of their Savior, they are worshiping. They are echoing with their lives and their deaths. Psalm 63, 3, Oh Lord, your loving kindness is better than life. They are saying with their last breath, God, you are more valuable to me than anything in this world. You are more valuable to me than anything this world has to offer. Worship is about value. It's about worth. What do you value this morning? What do you hold as most worthy in your life? What have you decided in your heart of hearts is the thing of most value to you? A person? A title? A position? A job? A material possession? A name? It's not hard to tell what we worship. Just ask yourself, what do you value most in this world? That's what you worship. What is most worthy? What has most worth in your life? That's what you worship. True worship is about value. It's about worth. That's the definition of worship. Now I'd like to move on to the practice of private worship. Worship in scripture is not confined to the public realm. Worship must affect all of life. Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Your entire way of life must be worship. Worship is life. And life is worship. We must not make a distinction between sacred times and secular times. All of life is sacred. You know, some people, they say, well, I can worship God at church on Sundays. And the rest of the week, I can just live like the devil. You know, that mindset is not only hypocritical, it reveals a blatant misunderstanding of their theology of worship. That mindset is a blatant misunderstanding of what worship is and what it is not. Now let's look at a biblical illustration of the vital importance of true worship in the private life. Let's look at the book of Jonah. W wait a minute. Did you say the book of Jonah? Did you misread that? Did you mean the book of John? No, actually, I mean the book of Jonah. You know Jonah very well. In Jonah 1.1, God comes explicitly to Jonah with a specific mission. Go to Nineveh 
go preach to the Ninevites. And of course, Jonah, he goes in the opposite direction. He goes in the reverse direction. He runs away. And Jonah 1.3 says this, But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Verse 3 says it twice to underscore its importance, to underscore the point. Jonah is fleeing from the presence of the Lord. He is fleeing from the presence of God. Now just think back to our definition of worship. What is it in worship that the believer truly wants above all things? It is to commune with God, to be in the presence of the Lord, to be in the presence of God, to be with God, to engage with God. But here we see Jonah doing the opposite. Jonah flees from the presence of the Lord. This is an echo back to Genesis chapter 3, the fall. Genesis 3, what did Adam and Eve do after they disobeyed God? The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Jonah's doing the exact same thing. It is a mistake to think that Jonah is just fleeing from Nineveh. It is a mistake to think that Jonah is just fleeing from his mission. No, that's not enough. That doesn't cut it. Jonah is fleeing from God himself. And of course, you remember the story. Jonah gets on that ship, and God hurls a great storm against that ship. And they begin to sink. And the sailors, they wake up Jonah. They shake him awake, and they pepper him with questions. Jonah 1.8, what is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And look at how Jonah responds. Jonah 1.9. He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven. The irony is thick. The irony is so thick, you could cut it with a knife. The irony is absurd. Here Jonah is saying, I am a Hebrew. I worship the Lord. And yet, what is Jonah doing as he's saying this? He's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. He's doing the exact opposite of worship. So with his lips, Jonah is saying, I worship the Lord. But he's screaming with his life, I am fleeing from the Lord. With his lips, Jonah is saying, I am Jonah, a submissive worshiper. But with his life, he is shouting, I am Jonah, a defiant prophet. Jonah is saying one thing with his lips, and he's doing the exact opposite with his life. He is doing the exact opposite of worship. Likewise, today, there are people who say, I'm a Christian. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven. And yet, in their personal life, they are fleeing from the presence of the Lord. There are people who bear the name of Christ, who come to church, who may even serve at church, who say, I am a Christian, I worship the Lord. 
But in their personal life, they are hiding from the presence of the Lord. They say one thing with their lips and they do another thing with their lives. They are like Jonah, people who say they worship, but in their life they are doing the exact opposite of worship. I pray that that would not be anyone in this room. This is the great balance of worship. We need both private worship and public worship. The two are connected. The two are interwoven. You cannot divorce public worship from private worship. You cannot separate public worship from private worship. If true worship is desiring to come into the presence of the Lord, then you must do that both publicly and privately. We are gravely mistaken if we think we can just relegate worship to Sunday. But while worship must happen in our private life, we must not neglect public worship. Let's move on to the practice of corporate worship. Psalm 100 verse 4 says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Corporate worship refers to the gathered public worship of the body of Christ. In Latin, the word corporate comes from the root word corpus, which means body. And it refers to the body of Christ gathering together to engage and encounter God. It is sometimes known as gathered worship or assembled worship or public worship or congregational worship. They are one and the same. The Old Testament emphasized the corporate worship of God. Let's just do a simple word count. A simple verse count. In Exodus, the tabernacle, the place of public worship, takes 243 verses to describe. That's seven chapters of Exodus. And yet, the creation of the world takes only 31 verses to describe. That's just one chapter of Genesis. You can see by a simple word count, by a simple verse count, the emphasis of God. Let's see it from a different angle, the angle of architecture, or better yet, city planning. As the Israelites wandered in the desert for 40 years, they set up their camp as they went. Now, there are very specific instructions to them. The tabernacle, the place of public worship, was always situated in the center of the camp. And around the tabernacle, the tribes of Israel were to set up their tents. And all of their tents were supposed to face the tabernacle. They were supposed to face the center. They were supposed to face inward. They were supposed to face the place of public worship. What this means is that every morning... An Israelite would wake up, stretch their arms, yawn, walk out of their tent. The first thing they see is the tabernacle, the place of public worship. Every morning for 40 years, as you open the door to your tent, the first thing you see is the tabernacle, the place of public worship. The reality is, corporate worship matters to God. 
God meets with his people corporately in a special way that he does not meet with them individually. There is no replicating the work of the Spirit of God in corporate worship. You cannot replicate it with an MP3 or a CD or a podcast or a tape. Definitely not a tape. But you cannot replicate it. God meets with his people corporately in a special, profound way. In 2 Chronicles 7, 1 and 2, the glory of God fills the temple. The chronicler writes, Now when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. The priests could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the house. The glory of the Lord filled the temple. The New Testament puts the same emphasis, except this time, instead of the temple, it is the church. This is exactly what happened on the day of Pentecost. Acts 2, when the Spirit of the Lord descended upon the early church and the glory of the Lord filled the early church such that the believers spoke in tongues. The glory of the Lord filled the temple in the Old Testament and the glory of the Lord filled the church in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we, the church, are the temple of God. We are the dwelling place of God. We are the sanctuary of God. We are the royal priesthood. This is where sacrifices happen, the sacrifices of our lives. This is where worship happens. So every Sunday when we meet, the glory of the Lord fills this temple as it did in days of old. You can't replicate that. Jonathan Edwards believed this. Martin Lloyd-Jones believed the same. Ian Murray was assistant pastor to Martin Lloyd-Jones for many years at Westminster Chapel. And he tells a story of how they were always trying to convince Lloyd-Jones to tape record his sermons. we got to get you on tape. He didn't say it like that because he's British and probably sounded a lot better. But basically, we got to get you on tape, Dr. Lloyd-Jones. And Lloyd-Jones kept refusing because he did not believe that you could do justice to corporate worship by listening to a sermon on tape. So they kept trying to convince him until one day they figured out a way. There were two old ladies in the church who were homebound due to illness. And they could not, physically could not, come to church on the Lord's Day. And so they finally brought this to Lloyd-Jones, and he finally gave in. It is only because of those two old ladies in that church that we now have Lloyd-Jones' sermons on tape today. It was because he believed that God visited his church corporately in a way that could not be replicated on a tape. Stacy Woods describes how one time she was at Westminster Chapel when the presence of God visited the church in a special way. Woods writes, in an extraordinary way, the presence of God was in that church. I personally felt as if a hand were pushing me through the pew. At the end of the sermon, for some reason or the other, the organ did not play. The doctor went off into the vestry, and everyone sat completely still without moving. It must have been almost ten minutes before people seemed to find the strength to get up and without speaking to one another, quietly leave 
the church. The glory of the Lord was filling his temple as it did in days of old. So as we speak about this topic of corporate worship, I'd like to clarify that right now we're going to move on to speaking about specifically the worship services of the church. Specifically, the Sunday morning worship services, the gathered corporate worship of the church. I'm not talking about care group. I'm not talking about youth group. I am talking about the corporate worship of the church. Let's look at the principle for corporate worship. When we talk about the principle for corporate worship, we ask, what should be included in the Sunday morning worship service? What should be included? Should we have skits, drama? Should we have an interpretive dance? I mean, you could dance to the glory of God, can you not? How about painting? Painting on the walls during the worship service. How about lighting candles? Should we do that? Well, it's a great question, and there are two main approaches. The first is the normative principle, also known as the permissive principle. This is held by most famously, Lutherans and Anglicans. But as you'll see, this is widespread in American evangelicalism today. Martin Luther and John Calvin actually disagreed significantly on this topic. Luther said that you can have in your public worship anything that God has not forbidden. The normative principle says you may have in worship whatever is not expressly forbidden. So if God didn't forbid it, it's fair game. If God doesn't prohibit it, you're free to do it. This is where we get dance in worship or painting in worship or drama in worship because God does not prohibit dance or painting or drama. Well, Calvin said the opposite. Call it the regulative principle of worship. The regulative principle means that we may allow in worship only what scripture has expressly commanded. God, through the scriptures, regulates our worship. We are told exactly what should be included in our worship services. We do not worship God in any way that we please. We worship God only in the way that he himself has ordained. We do not include anything beyond the bounds of scripture. We don't include drama, we don't include dance, we don't include skits or lighting candles or painting. If you want to have drama in the youth group, fine. If you want to light a candle at a wedding, fine. But not in the corporate worship of the church. Clowney says it rightly, God's glory draws our worship and God's will directs our worship. Let's move on to the pattern of New Testament corporate worship. If we follow the regulative principle of worship, and I believe that we should, then it becomes very clear what we are to include in corporate worship. First, public prayer, Acts 2.42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. It actually says the prayer, the specific prayer with a definite article. This is speaking about corporate prayer. In fact, if you study the book of Acts, the vast majority of prayer is corporate prayer. 
We should not see prayer as merely individual. We should see it as a corporate act of worship whereby we, the church, are communing with God by speaking to God. Secondly, the administration of the ordinances. Again, Acts 2.42, they were continually devoting themselves to the breaking of bread. And again, in the Greek, it is the breaking of bread, the specific breaking of bread. All commentators agree that this is not just some random or general breaking of bread like we're eating a meal. No, this is a reference to the Lord's Supper, the specific breaking of bread. And by implication, baptism, the ordinances of the church, which are meant to be celebrated in the context of the corporate gathering of Christ's people. Next, offering. 1 Corinthians 16.2, on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. We must first remember that giving and tithing are acts of worship. We are not first and foremost giving to the church. We are first and foremost giving to God as an act of worship as a way of telling God that you are more valuable to us than anything in this world. Next, singing. Singing is an integral part of corporate worship. In fact, singing can be seen as a subset of corporate prayer. Who are we speaking to when we sing? To whom are we addressing? Of course, the answer is God. We are speaking to God. Come thou fount of every blessing. Be thou my vision. Jesus, thou joy of loving hearts. Who are we speaking to when we sing? God. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Notice the content of our singing. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Our music must be filled and saturated with the word of God, with the truth of Christ. Our song should be theologically sound and theologically rich. This is why I believe that it behooves pastors, elders, and worship leaders to be thorough students of hymnody and music. Because we trust them. We trust our pastors, elders, and worship leaders that every word of every line, of every verse, of every song is theologically sound to instruct the mind, to teach the heart, to feed the soul. Note also Paul says, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. This speaks of the variety of music. We are not beholden to exclusive psalmody, where we sing only psalms. We need not sing only hymns. We can sing new songs too. Scripture allows for a varied, wide range of musical worship to minister to a varied, wide range of worshipers. Finally, Notice that some songs, as we sing them, should admonish us. That is, they should rebuke us. Now, that is so countercultural, Paul. 
Have you ever read the hymn book of the Old Testament, the book of Psalms? As we're reading through it in Sunday morning worship, do you see that not all Psalms are happy, happy, happy? There is a time for every season under heaven, and there is a psalm for every season under heaven. Likewise, the songs that we sing on Sunday morning do not always have to be happy, happy, happy. Now, don't get me wrong. It is good to sing uplifting music. It is good to sing encouraging music. But sometimes it is good when the songs confront us, when the songs rebuke us, when the songs shake us out of our spiritual stupor. We have people coming to church today with a wide range of spiritual experiences. Some people are walking closely with the Lord, and they know intimately the joy of the Lord. But some people are walking as if in a wilderness. They're suffering, and they are saying, How long, O Lord? Other people are struggling deeply with sin. Other people are deeply depressed. Five straight songs about how this is your best life now probably isn't what those people need. Our music should reflect the full range of Christian experience. Can you hear the joy of Henry Van Dyke when he wrote, Joyful, joyful, we adore thee, God of glory, Lord of love. Can you hear the courage of Martin Luther when he penned, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Can you hear the blind hymnist Fanny Crosby calling out for faith and trust in the Lord when she said, All the way my Savior leads me, what have I to ask beside when I doubt his tender mercy who through life has been my guide? Can you hear the pain and grief and loss in the voice of Horatio Spafford who just lost his wife and kids when he wrote, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. Our music should reflect the full range of Christian experience. Next, the word. First Timothy 4.13 Paul tells Timothy, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Notice that Paul differentiates between the public reading of Scripture and the preaching of Scripture. Scripture should be read and should be preached. There should be extended public reading of Scripture and there should be preaching of Scripture. Sometimes people in the church, whether they know it or not, make a distinction between the worship of the church and the sermon. Sometimes you'll hear people say, we had a great time of worship, and then the pastor started preaching. To most American Christians, worship is equated with music. Worship is what happens when music happens, and when the music stops, worship stops. But the reality is, preaching and listening to preaching are acts of worship. We are communing with God in the revelation of himself. 
The American Puritan Cotton Mather said about preaching, the great design and intention of a Christian preacher is to restore the throne and dominion of God in the souls of men. Preaching restores the throne of God in your soul. Preaching establishes the dominion of God in your soul. Preaching gives us a vision for the grace and the grandeur of God. Preaching gives us a picture for the gravity of God, the weightiness of God. And brothers and sisters, if that is not worship, I don't know what is. This isn't just any word. This is the word of God. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is living and active. Brothers and sisters, this is logic on fire in our hands. This word pierces the heart. This word rescues people from darkness. This word resurrects sinners from the dead. This is the living word of the living God. So the world may say to us, what are you going to do, Cornerstone? What are you going to do, Cornerstone? There's another mass shooting. Terrorism is rampant. Our economy is failing. Gender issues are widespread. What are you going to do, Cornerstone? What are you going to do? And let it be that Cornerstone Bible Church will say and will always say, we're going to let God speak. We're going to let God speak. It doesn't matter who stands behind this pulpit. It doesn't matter who stands behind this sacred desk. May Cornerstone Bible Church always say, we're going to let God speak. What are we going to do? I'm going to stand up on Sunday morning, on the Lord's Day, and I'm going to let God speak. Oh Lord, rend the heavens and come down and do it through your word. There may be a famine in the land for the word of God, but may there never ever be a famine in this church. We're going to let God speak. Every part of the service is worship, from prayer to giving to singing to preaching. And if it's not worship, we need to make it worship or we need to get it out of the worship service. If it's not worship, we need to purge it from our worship service. So at this time, I'd like to close with practical applications for maximizing your experience in corporate worship. First, prepare your heart for corporate worship. I can honestly say, I think that out of all the things that we most neglect in our corporate worship, it is preparation for worship. It's preparation for worship. We forget in whose name we gather. We forget who we're coming to meet. If we really remembered that we are here to meet the God of the universe, that should move our hearts to prepare to meet him. This is not the same for everyone. Perhaps for you, it is praying for five minutes before the worship service. Maybe for some, it is reading the sermon passage ahead of time. For others, it's getting to bed on time on Saturday night. But for everyone, it should be coming to the worship service on time so we can prepare ourselves to meet with God. Do whatever it takes to prepare yourself for worship. Next, 
prepare your hearts to hear preaching. Too many people think of preaching as if it's just a one-way street, but nothing could be farther from the truth. Effective communication always involves both preacher and listener. It always involves both speaker and hearer. James 1.21 says, In humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. That's a command to us, the hearers, to receive the word. Spurgeon said, We are told men ought not to preach without preparation. Granted. But we add, men ought not to hear without preparation. Which, think you, needs the most preparation, the sower or the ground? I would have the sower come with clean hands, but I would have the ground well plowed and harrowed, well turned over and the clods broken before the seed is cast in. It seems to me that there is more preparation needed by the ground than by the sower, more by the hearer than by the preacher. Third and last, worship from the heart. Don't just go through the motions. Don't just go through the external ritual. Go beyond that. Engage your heart. When corporate prayer is happening, don't let your mind wander. Remember, you are speaking with God. You are communing with God. In the offering, give with a cheerful heart, a heart that delights in the currency of heaven. In the singing, don't be distracted by other people and don't let them distract you. Remember, you are singing to the God of the universe. Sing to your heart's delight. Even if you have a hard time carrying the tune, even if you have a hard time hitting those notes, remember, you have an audience of one. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Focus on God. That is what we've been talking about since the beginning, is it not? Worship is God-directed. Worship seeks communion with God. Worship consumes the worshiper, not just outwardly, but inwardly. And I can think of no more appropriate way to close our discussion of worship this morning by ending right where we started, to echo the reality with which we began, with which we began to come full circle, to let God speak. Psalm 100, one last time. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. And his faithfulness all generations. Let us pray. Father who is in heaven, let it be that everything we do in life would be worship. Let it be that everything we do as we gather together would be worship. O oh Lord, let us say with our lives our lips, our actions, our hearts, that you are more valuable to us than anything in this world. Let us be worshipers of the one true and living God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.